0: Father in heaven, there is new life pulsing through our congregation, and it's because of your son. Jesus, you promised us, you will build your church. The gates of hell won't prevail upon it, and you are building your church here with your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, with people, with precious people. And we pray that you would do now the work that only you can do. Lord, we have, uh, we have kindling here in the word of God and we pray that you would grant us faith. We pray that the Holy Spirit would be the match that you throw on this congregation and light us up as we see the zeal, the consuming zeal of your son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Lord, come and teach us now. We have much to learn. In Jesus' name. Amen. Writers and readers of uh, fiction, literature, have long recognized the importance of place and of children's church. Thank you, children's church. (laughs) Children's church. If you are second grade and younger, you can go down to children's church. Thank you. That was important, thank you. Was that the only one who didn't know? So if you're second grade and younger, you can head on down. If you're third to seventh grade, there's a binder in the back that you can take notes in. And I want to tell you about writers and readers of fiction literature, as you do. You read fiction, you write fiction, you know that you pay attention to and you treasure the importance of place, of setting, location, geography. It's crucial to the meaning of a story. And a good writer doesn't just have an eye for detail. A good writer delights in details, delighting readers with them. A good writer knows how to take seriously their locale, and we revel in it when they do. Um, Exhibit A this morning would be the opening lines to one of my favorite books, a, a book by a pastor named Dave Hansen called The Art of Pastoring. You may want to close your eyes if that helps you, but you don't need to. Hansen writes, My face sinks into my hands, but the desk is too cold for my elbows. The space heater with the cloth-covered cord has warmed the air. My breath doesn't show, but the steel desk warms excruciatingly slow. It's freezing me. I'm too cold to read a book. My office is a lean-to attachment to the fellowship hall of a community church in rural Montana. There's no wall heater, no thermostat, no insulation. The place warms from scratch every morning. It's six weeks into the new year, six weeks into my first pastoral charge, 33 degrees outside and sleeting. It's sleeting in my soul. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I've been called, educated, interned, ordained. I have a list of tasks to do, but not who I am to be. I'm cold and afraid. There are a hundred things I could do if I could just stop shivering. The spring skunks seek secluded dens to procreate and raise their skunklings. Our fellowship hall, with its crumbling stone foundation, extends a warm welcome to them. Its gaping holes say more than words ever could, we welcome you to this church. We see ourselves as a church family, and we've never met a family's needs as well as we've met the skunks. Our crawl space is dark and dry, and the trash cans outside the door are perpetually knocked over by wandering dogs. A healthy Montana skunk smells like a burning tire. The acrid odors wafting through my office in springtime make me appreciate the pure 33-degree air that I inhale in the winter. Okay. Any similarities to pastors living or dead is purely coincidental. My office is attached to the fellowship hall, but that is where the comparison ends. I love my conditions. I liked them before the new office. I feel like a king sitting in my office each day. I'm very grateful. But he paints a picture, doesn't he? It's as almost as if it was happening here in Mount. Why does Mound, Minnesota sound like Victor, Montana, even for a minute and a half or so? Because he's a good writer? Yeah. And because he knows what every single one of us knows, that place, painting a picture for a reader, is everything. If you can see yourself there... Meaning begins to unlock for you. We are lovers of context, creatures of context. Lovers of place. So here's the big idea this morning. One of the most pervasive themes in the Bible is the jaw-dropping truth of the dwelling place of God. Pervasive So extensive, inescapable, all over the place in the Bible. One of the most pervasive themes in the Bible is the jaw-dropping truth of the dwelling place of God. At the dedication of the first temple, King Solomon asks the rhetorical question in 1 Kings 8.27, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house that I've built. And all the same, the Gospel of John is sprinkled with real-life place names like Galilee, Nazareth, Cana, and today, Capernaum. When John says in chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he meant that on multiple levels. In fact, if you were to start at the beginning of the Bible and just trace this storyline thread straight through, you would see one of the most powerful fibers in the fabric of Scripture, the dwelling place of God. So from the Garden of Eden to the Ark of Noah, from the Old Testament tabernacle to the Old Testament temple, the Bible bends over backwards to chase this strand all the way through Scripture, from Genesis to Malachi. And here in the Gospels, this theme meets its appointed fulfillment as every theme in the Bible meets its fulfillment in Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. So here's point one today. God dwelt in Capernaum, be encouraged by it. God dwelt in Capernaum. Be encouraged by it. If you want to know spell Capernaum, look with me at verse 12. Jesus performs the first of his signs, right, in Cana of Galilee, turns water into wine. Then John 2.12 says, After this, he went down to Capernaum where his mother and his brothers and his disciples, with his mother and brothers and disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. I look, on the face of it, it just looks like a scene change. Is there such a thing as a scene change in the Bible? Not just a scene change, of course. We need to exercise caution here. The scene matters. Remember the importance of place. Um, in an essay... Entitled, Good Readers and Good Writers, Vladimir Nabokov observed this. He said, In reading, one should notice and fondle the details. I like that phrase. We should notice and fondle some details. So let's take one more pass at the verse here. Fondle some details. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Notice the specificity of the detail that he went down to Capernaum. Which way did he go from Cana? Down. Down. Capernaum was a a large city. It was about 16 miles east, northeast of Cana. It's a seaport along the Sea of Galilee. Cana was in the highlands. Which way did John say Jesus went to Capernaum? Down. Down. He's right. This is one minuscule example of how the Bible can be trusted in every word, in every phrase, in every geographical truth. John doesn't miss a beat when he's speaking of elevation. We should listen to him when he speaks of incarnation. Secondly, with whom does Jesus both travel and stay according to verse 12? His mother. His brothers and his disciples. Now, there's an old discussion about the identity of the brothers in verse 12. Um, Some traditional interpreters, including most of the church fathers, first uh, several generations of church history, along with a lot of reformers, would argue for the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary in such a way that these brothers aren't brothers in the way that you and I might think of them, but rather distant relatives. These aren't siblings, maybe they're cousins and so on. It's a standard Roman Catholic teaching, of course. Um, But my view is that it would press that word brothers almost to the breaking point. You might be able to do that with this word, but not most naturally. Many conservative interpreters... Uh, reject the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. I do. I think these are Jesus' half brothers. I think they're the biological children of Mary and Joseph. In any case, what's most important for John's gospel here isn't the way that these guys related to Jesus familially, but how they didn't relate to him spiritually. Did you catch the classes of people with him in verse 12? Mary, the mother. Got the brothers and then the disciples. Look at John chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. John chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. After Jesus, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea. That your disciples may see, also see the works that you were doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. What do we learn from John chapter 7 that sheds a little bit of light on the situation in John chapter 2, verse 12? Not even his brothers believed in him. His disciples believed in him. Chapter 2, verse 11 tells us that. His disciples believed in him. But his disciples evidently don't include his brothers. Verse 12 says, Jesus went with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed in Capernaum for a few days. You think this was a little awkward? Slightly. Slightly. How many of you have unsaved family members that maybe you'll be with for Thanksgiving, let's say? Yeah, and you feel the tension. The tension that the very people in your life with whom you share the most profound relational ties, family, you do not enjoy the most profound spiritual truths with them. Your family is somewhere else. And here, worlds are colliding. Because his mother and brothers and then disciples. You think Jesus felt this tension? His disciples did? Not even his brothers believed in him. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and following. Jesus says something that's generally true about all families when he enters in. It was true of his own. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth or your family. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So when Jesus wasn't traveling, he made his home in the seaport of Capernaum. We see Capernaum pop up a lot. Now, we traveled a lot, but when he wasn't traveling, he was with people. His mother, who we saw last week, with whom he is constantly creating distance between them, and now his brothers, who don't believe in him. In this one three-day stretch, his disciples were right in the mix. It's not easy to have unsaved family members. Jesus knew this pain more than anybody. One of the most pervasive themes of the Bible is the jaw dropping truth of the dwelling place of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God dwelt in Capernaum. Be encouraged by it. Second point today God dwells in his temple. Be zealous for it. God dwells in his temple. Be zealous for it. I'll read verses 13 to 17. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their temples. And he told those who sold the pigeons, "'Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade.'" And his disciples remembered that it was written, "'Zeal for your house will consume me.'" Verse 13, John tells us that when it came time for the Passover, he went up to Jerusalem. Which way did he go to Jerusalem? up to Jerusalem, gets it right again, leaves the seaside, goes up to Jerusalem. Now, this is a famous account, one of the most intense moments in Jesus' entire ministry. It's really important to see what's going on here, what, what is the nature of the problem that disturbs Jesus so much. It's easy to get it wrong. Verse 14 refers to the those that are selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and to the money changers. Why are these men selling animals? Well, it's Passover. And each of these animals is, in pretty short order, going to become the object of sacrifice. Now, Jews would come from all over the Roman Empire to Jerusalem, to the temple, to celebrate the yearly Passover. And it was Totally impractical for them to bring animals with them from their place of origin, and make any sense, if, especially if they were able to come to Jerusalem and purchase animals that they could indeed make the sacrifice with there. This is a matter of convenience, and that's not the problem, precisely. This is simply being practical. Um, it's important also to see the money changers here. The money changers are providing a service. Again, Jews would stream in from all over the Roman Empire, and they had all kinds of coins, but there was only one particular coin, a Tyrian coin that was used to pay the temple tax. And they had to convert their money into the right kind of coin so that they could pay the temple tax that was commanded in the Old Testament. So the money changers are there just to help them make the exchange so that they can uh, pay for their presence and the ongoing ministries of the temple. So both of these services are fitting. They are of significant convenience to help the Jewish worshipers. The fact that those services exist are not a problem for the Lord, I don't think. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is twofold. First, as you might imagine, animals present in the temple courts made a huge racket. It made... God's house sound like a farm, a big farm. And with the money changers on hand, you now have the added complication of something close to the feel of stockbrokers on the floor, people changing money. So it's like Barnum and Bailey meets Wall Street in the temple. Is this conducive to worship? Speaking of the chaos of the animal sellers and the money changers, one author I read said, their presence created a carnival-like atmosphere. And look, for those who see worship as a carnival, not a problem, but it's a problem for Jesus. What does Jesus say to them in verse 16? Take these things away and do not make my Father's house a house of trade. The issue here isn't the house of trade aspect. The trade had to be done. Animals had to be bought, currency had to be exchanged. The problem was, they were doing it in his father's house. In Mark's account of the temple cleansing, in Mark eleven seventeen, 17, Jesus says to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. So instead of a place of prayer, the temple becomes a place of peddling. Feel the difference there? This could have been done outside the temple courts. Another source that I consulted said that this is like ticket scalpers not just hanging out outside the dome, but inside the ticket booth, scalping their tickets, or wandering the hallways of the event center. Is that a conflict of interest? Yeah, that's a problem. The second issue that Jesus had to deal with wasn't just the circus-like nature of how the worship had um, unraveled, but the statement in Mark 11, 17, Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for who? All the nations. This is very important. What's the temple? It's a house of prayer for all the nations. Now, any reconstructions of the temple that we know of as we look at how it was built and what the various geography of it was indicate that the animal sellers. And the coin changers set up shop in one particular place, in the court of the Gentiles. The only place in the entire complex where non-Jews were allowed to come and worship, and they were, if they came with a sacrifice like everyone else and paid their temple tax. This is likely what made Jesus' blood boil. What is a Gentile going to conclude if they come to their part of the temple to sacrifice and to pay their tax, that I'm not welcome here. And Jesus is furious. New Testament commentator Andreas Kostenberger writes that by this move, Jesus is saying that the Jews were insensitive at best, and this is evidence of religious arrogance at worst. Verse 17 says, His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. What's, what's zeal? It's not a word we use very often. It's a, it's a great word. It's a good Bible word. Um, one author I read said that zeal runs in our veins for what we love and against what we hate. So is Jesus angry? Yes. Is Jesus filled with love and passion in this moment? It's happening in the same place, in the same person. Zeal runs in our veins for what we love and against what we hate. So in Romans 12, 11, the Apostle Paul commands us, do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. I know the Gilbertsons group is laughing right now. You'll have to, you'll have to ask them about the flag and zeal joke. Man. Paul uses the word fervent in spirit, in Romans twelve eleven, fervent literally means burning, boiling for the things of God, on fire for God. And John's quotation of, in verse 17 is of King David in Psalm 69, 9. Zeal for your house has consumed me. So zeal, love for things, hate for other things, and then consumed me. It's another great word. The King James knocks this out of the park in its translation, very vivid. Zeal for thy house hath eaten me up. That's what it means to be consumed, to be eaten up. Jesus is consumed with his love for God and his house, and he hates the sin that he sees. So not only that his house would be filled with contrition not commerce, but that all people everywhere would have access to the dwelling place of God. So what's the application here for us? Is it we don't let missionaries set up their table where Dave Brickley is seated so they don't do commerce in the sanctuary? Do we prevent our kids from selling magazine subscriptions in Fellowship Hall? Is that the thing that Jesus would be in a twist over? Well, yes, if this were God's temple, which it's not. 2117 Commerce Boulevard is not God's temple. Where is God's temple today? 1 Corinthians 3.16, speaking to the entire church, Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple? Plural. You are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you. A few chapters later, 1 Corinthians 6 19 and 20, Paul says, Now to individuals, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price to glorify God in your body. Jesus is zealous for God's house. Collectively and individually. And the worship that takes place within it. That all peoples, especially outsiders, would be invited in and have a place. Jesus is zealous for us. So a few questions for application. What fills you with zeal? What consumes you? Does your daily time with the Lord consume you you gotta get the book open is that what you're thinking when you wake up does your investment in household worship family worship consume you nothing is gonna keep you from family worship each day does your pursuit of your own personal holiness and the killing of your sin consume you how about your, your zealousness, your jealousy to see people on your list of five meet the Savior? In what ways do you inconvenience yourself in a way that would look like zeal to see that you're around them? You know what zeal is? It's getting baptized in Lake Minnetonka on October 13th. <laughs> that is zeal. It's 55 degrees at best air temp right now. I don't know what the water is. A team of Clydesdale horses couldn't keep Brenda from jumping in the water. And Deb loves her very much and is going with her. That is zeal. Zeal looks odd from the outside. We start to suggest maybe you should try it this way. Or legalism. We play the legalism card. Far too often we find ourselves flagging in zeal. What contributes to that? Zeal for other stuff. Television. Career. Material pursuits. Just paying the bills. Shuttling from family activity to family activity. Consumed by some secret sin. Those are a few questions for application. What keeps you from being in a community group? Just a little, little calendar tweak that you could make? Jesus is zealous for us that worship would take place in our hearts and among each other, that all peoples, especially outsiders, would be invited in, that we would inconvenience ourselves to the max to be with unbelievers. Zeal for God's dwelling place consumed Christ. God dwells in his temple. Be zealous for it. Third point, God dwells in the flesh and blood of Jesus of Nazareth. Believe it. God dwells in the flesh and blood of Jesus of Nazareth. Believe it. Look with me once more at verses 18 to 22. The Jews said to him, What sign do you show for doing us these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, and when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is my favorite part. This is the gospel part of the sermon because I've just laid a heavy on us, and now you need to go to the one who's going to bear that weight for you and with you. Verse eighteen: The Jewish authorities reveal that they they don't have the first clue who Jesus is. They don't know what he's just done. Uh, the, the reason we know this is because they ask him for a sign. He just did the sign. It's the second of his signs. There's seven of them. This is it's number two. And they're blind to it. And he's not inclined to offer them another one. Except that he speaks to them with this veiled reference to his own crucifixion and resurrection, which is the greatest sign he ever gave. Verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up now here's what's amazing to me not only does Jesus not dance when they ask him to he responds to them in symbolism that is so thick none of the disciples can cut through it for 36 months Why doesn't just Jesus say in verse 19 what John says in verse 21? Why the symbolism no one understands? It was John Calvin who observed in 1553 that Jesus is simply treating unbelievers as they deserve. Plain speaking from Jesus is grace. Parables from Jesus are grace too. And he told them, symbol-laden though it was, that if they tear his body down, he will raise it up. And you know what? They took him up on it. They did. They destroyed his temple. John chapter 19 says it so they crucified him and in John chapter 20 he raises up the temple 3 days later this is why we so desperately need the gospel if all we hear is jesus knows what it's like to have unsaved family verse 12 or jesus wants us to burn with holiness and concern for unbelievers as individuals and as a church verses 13 to 17 well, then we have Jesus as our example and Jesus as our leader but we need more we need a savior we need a substitute our zeal for God's house is so defective that Jesus who is God's true dwelling place offered his house to be destroyed on our behalf, verses 21 and 22. He was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. We don't know what the scripture is. John doesn't quote a scripture here. Some Old Testament scripture. I my money is on Psalm 16, something like that that describes the resurrection of Jesus. But they believed the Old Testament. And then they believe this word. And we need to believe that too. Jesus doesn't just identify with us in our humdrum, difficult situations with unbelieving family. And he doesn't just show us the way with zeal. His body was torn down and crucified and buried. And three days later, he rose again for our failure to complete the first two points of this sermon. And when he came out of the grave, he came with resurrection power for each one of us. So your difficult family relationships and ours as a family are not impossible. The Holy Spirit dwells within. Zeal can be yours. What God demands from you, he will supply for you in zeal. And when you fail, as I do, as we all do, remember that God dwells in flesh and blood in the Jesus of Nazareth. So one of the most pervasive themes of the Bible is the jaw-dropping truth of the dwelling place of God. God dwelt in Capernaum. Be encouraged by it. God dwells in his temple. Be zealous for this church. Be zealous for your own walk with the Lord. God dwells in the flesh and blood of Jesus of Nazareth. Believe it. This is written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for grace that pardons us and grace that empowers us. Thank you that at the cross, Lord Jesus, you absorbed sin's penalty. You now live to free us from sin's power and one day you will free us from sin's very presence. Lord, zeal will be all ours in the new heavens and new earth. Fellowship, Christian fellowship will be all ours. The one thing we can't do in heaven is tell unbelievers about you. So may this make us burn to move into our neighborhoods and our own households and places of work and places where we go to school to say a good word for Jesus. And when we fail, and we all do, Lord, as our heads hit the pillow tonight, thank you that you died for us. Thank you that you were torn down. And thank you that the grave didn't beat you. Thank you that you're triumphantly resurrected today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.